The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back and I am joined in this hour by brilliant contributors, immigration attorney Alan Orr, who's the founder of Orr Immigration Law Firm. Welcome back, Alan. Hi, happy to be here. Always a pleasure, my friend. And Nakima Levy-Armstrong, civil rights attorney, activist, and author of J is for Justice is joining us in this hour. Hello, my friend. How are you, Ariva? Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm fantastic. I'm so happy that I have two brilliant lawyers on because I, I want to get you guys' you know, response or visceral response, reaction to this law professor at UPenn, Amy Wax. I'll start with you, uh, Alan. You know, she's denying some of these allegations, uh, particularly the ones where demeaning another black student who says she, you know, basically said she was uh, admitted into these Ivy League schools because of affirmative action. But what do you make of Amy Wax? It's it's problematic, but, uh, you know, I think she's saying a lot of things that other professors think, but just she's saying it out loud. And um, I don't think she belongs in a university, that's for sure. Yeah, what are you thinking, Nakima? She's saying, look, I have a First Amendment right. You may not like what I say. I'm a tenured professor. And schools, particularly law schools, are places where we should have a diversity of thought. And I'm free to express my opinions. Now, you may not all like them, but they are my opinions. Well, as a former law professor, I just have to say that my question is, where do we draw the line? I don't think that it should be the standard that simply because a person has tenure that they can say the kind of things that Amy Wax has said and think that they're going to get away with it. I have seen law schools strip tenure from people for what I would say much less or you know similar behavior. So I don't think she should be able to hide behind tenure. But I'm also wondering, how did the institution allow things to get this far? Mm. Typically, when you are uh, preparing for tenure, you know, you have to also go forward and uh, try to get promoted, you know, from assistant professor to associate professor. And then a lot of times before you become a full professor, you are applying for tenure which means that faculty inside of your institution and outside of your institution have read your scholarship, have looked up other information on the internet to decide whether or not you are qualified for tenure. So I just wonder how did Amy Wax get this far without there being some yellow or red flags that came up with regard to whether she's competent to be in this position? So that's a great question, Alan. What we know from the New York Times reporting is that the university resisted for a long time uh, pleas from the student body to discipline her. And he's apparently the university president has made this about face and he's preparing this complaint to bring her before some body, some legislative, some, I guess, administrative body for a hearing for her to answer to these charges. But he's being attacked by the free speech you know, folks who are saying that this is a university and she has a right to speak freely without fear of punishment, whether in public or in the classroom. And they say this is wokeism. This is the epitome of wokeism, the mob going after someone because their opinions are more conservative. And we seem to be stuck in this culture war now where, you know, we saw when Nicole Hannah Brown, uh, when she was leaving uh, the university that she left to, to go to Howard, some of the folks on 
the board of that university didn't like some of her positions. So whether you're a liberal leaning Democrat like Hannah Nicole Brown talking honestly about slavery and the history of slavery or you're Amy Wax, it seems to be perilous times for professors on campus. Uh, I'm not so sure that it's perilous times. I think that there's a difference between the two, so they're distinguishable. But I do believe that the first thing to understand about all those places are that they are profit centers and students need to come there. And that's the first business is to make sure students are welcome there. And if the professor is going against that profit center, then they should be removed for that reason alone, much less the dangerous things that she's spouting to the public and also the sort of racist and xenophobic things that she's putting in tropes that she's bringing into the educational sphere as science to say that this isn't scholarly. I do know that there are many people who keep their mouths closed until they get tenure and then they become this problem. We see it with judges all the time, that that's when they sort of wake up and they feel now I'm empowered and now it's this time for me to turn around and I'm glad the university is doing the right thing. But in fact, as, as the other guest has said, there had to be something before this that they kept turning an eye to saying, giving her a pass. And I wonder why they gave her a pass just because she might perhaps be part of that group. She doesn't get a pass, right? I mean, I think that's a little bit of what's happening here in the situation. Yeah, I guess, uh, Nakima, these groups, the Academic Freedom Alliance, Pan-America, and the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression have criticized the dean and said that the Professor Wack should not be fired because of her public statements, um, that academic freedom cannot be a privilege of those who only espouse prevailing views, but a protected right. It must be a protected right of all faculty. I guess my issue is, I don't think the school needs to get into whether they support or not support her comments. I, I'm going to go the route that you're talking about, Alan, in terms of making a business decision, because I think if you get on that slippery slope about her conservative views, her racist views, it's just kind of a loser. Look, this is a business and it has customers and the students are the customers. And if there's any fear of you damaging my customer base, eroding my customer base, then I have a, a legitimate business reason to remove you from that position. And clearly, if this woman is espousing these views, how can any student of color feel comfortable being in her classroom? You know, how can they feel like they can express themselves freely? How can they exercise their own First Amendment right? How can they feel that any grade that she would give them would be uh, unbiased, that it would be fair? So I, I think there are some legitimate reasons that this school could use that would, I think, withstand scrutiny when the lawsuit comes, because we know the lawsuit is coming, uh, that don't get the school entangled in this fight over whether she's a racist or homophobic. Uh, I, I think that that's probably a, a no-win situation, given how partisan the country is right now, and given how divided we are on some of these issues. Uh, I'm just curious, Nakima, in the cases that you've seen, you know, have universities tried to, you know, just take that approach rather than getting into kind of these fights about whether someone's speech is racist or homophobic? Well, I think that is complicated in terms of drawing the line just at a business perspective, you know, from a business decision. Uh, and that comes from my own experience, right? So like I said, I'm a former law professor. I taught at University of St. Thomas Law School for 13 years before leaving in 2016. I had tenure. I was a full professor of law. During that period of time, though, as I became an activist on the front lines, mm. helping to shut things down, whether it was a Mall of America or a freeway, um, in the name of police accountability and equal justice under the law for Black folks, I was targeted mm. um, by folks you know, who did not agree with my views, 
some of whom I'm sure contacted not only the law school, but also the university to complain. Thankfully, I was protected, even though I'm sure that my comments offended some people along with some of my actions in terms of being out on the front lines. So I was protected, but the institution along the lines that we're saying right now could have said, hey, some students may not feel comfortable coming to St. Thomas because you are connected to Black Lives Matter or because you are calling out uh, police violence and calling for police accountability. So if they use that same rationale, I would have potentially lost my job really for standing up for us as a community and as a people. Thankfully, it did not get to that point, primarily because of, I think, being a part of a faith-based law school that understood that I was coming out of a civil rights tradition with my work, but a different administration could have easily decided differently. And I say to this day, if I had taught at one of the other three law schools in the Twin Cities, they would have found a way using that same rationale to get me off of the faculty. Yeah, I so think that's you're right. why I'm cautious about taking that approach of just, just saying that it's about a business proposition. No, I think you're right. It's it's incredibly complicated, but I don't know, you know, how far is a, a university that's predominantly white, like this university is, with predominantly white students, how how far are they willing to go in this battle with a white professor who is espousing what some are saying are just conservative views and 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 kind of immerse themselves in these culture wars? And Alan, this culture war is now even spilling over into the banking issue. So Silicon right. Bank fails. And Ron DeSantis and other prominent Republicans are blaming, quote unquote, woke politics for the bank's collapse instead of the bankers, you know, negligence or incompetence in running the bank. Well, I think it's bigger than just that, right? Because I think one of the things that really needs to talk about in this world, I'm not a banking lawyer, but I know enough to be dangerous, is the way they change the way banks are regulated. So not just the changes under the Trump administration that removed some of the regulations of seeing how the bank is run, but also making these banks into profit centers that have investments that are looking for profits back. If you roll that back, then you don't get the problem that you had today when you're not trying to pay investors. That's the primary problem that they sort of face in that banking situation. The second thing that I think they face, and they always face it and they find a way to do it, is now the new thing is diversity. Pete Buttigieg is bad at at uh, um, that because he's gay and he's got children. Every time there's a problem, they look for someone who's gay, who's black, who's a female. The vice president, oh my God, she can't get anything right. We need to remove her from the ticket. This is their constant beat of the drum and this is gonna be the downfall of the Republican party in the long run because now they're showing their hand too clearly because it's always about the, the other. Yeah, <laughs> so it's Josh, I'm laughing because Senator from my home state, Missouri, Josh Howie complained that Silicon Valley bank executives were spending their time on funding, quote, woke garbage, climate change solutions, rather than actual banking, and now want a handout from taxpayers to save them. You know, it's really, I, I don't know if there's any limits, Nakima, to where these people go with some of this ridiculousness. And again, Josh Hawley, I think he's a Harvard, Princeton, Yale, something. I mean, these are not dumb guys. And I don't yeah, know, dumb can be Harvard. defined in a lot of different ways, right? So th they earn degrees at some schools that folks respect in this uh, country. Both of them are Harvard, right? They're both <laughs> elitists saying that, 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 that they're for the people. That's the funny part. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're the right, most... But what would Malcolm X say? He probably would call them educated fools at the end of the day. <laughs> you know, so I don't want to give too much credence just because they went to Harvard, just because they have these degrees, just because they have a platform. That doesn't negate 
the fact that ignorance is coming forward and they're yeah. using it as a way of attacking people who well, we know they know the difference, right? That's all we're saying. Well, they know what's right. They are choosing to be provocateurs. They are choosing to engage in these culture wars. So Ron DeSantis says the culprit, again, why this Silicon Valley bank failed was diversity, equity, and inclusion. The bank's website said it was building a global workforce celebrating greater dimensions of diversity. <laughs> and Ron <laughs> says, that's the problem, people. <laughs> That damn diversity, equity, and inclusion to do it every time. It's going to sink a whole bank. Now, he says, we're so concerned with DEI and politics and all that kind of stuff. I think that really diverted from them focusing on their core mission. I really keep laughing because, you know, again, that's why I started by saying we can't sleep on this stuff. It, it's not funny. It's, it's not comical. It's dangerous, right, Nakima? This is dangerous because what we know... Dangerous is that people repeat things over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Some people start believing it. I mean, somebody's yeah. going to go and say that bank failed because of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Absolutely. Just like the attacks on African-American studies right now in schools in Florida and around the country, right? They're trying to flip the truth on its head. They use these talking points that get people riled up. And the next thing you know, you have another January 6th incident. Mm. on your hands because people have believed in the lies without question and have turned off their brains to the to these talking heads which is really sad i think one of the saddest things uh, alan is that there's been polls conducted by reputable polling organizations mm -hmm. asking people one do they even know what woke means right do they agree with it? And I think I just saw a poll yesterday that said most of the country identifies with wokeness mean, meaning being socially conscious. Absolutely. And the majority of the country said, yeah, that's a exactly. good thing. That's the same. That's the same. his downfall. That's his downfall. <laughs> that's what's going to hurt him everywhere else outside of Florida. When you step outside that racist, racist bound, it's going to really hurt you. And, you know, from the Twin City is a prime example of a state that has all types of diversity, immigrants, labor, and these big banking industries. And they are striving as cities. They have some of the most, I think they have more billionaires than per capita. So once again, diversity can't be the issue. Diversity is probably the tool to lead to that great success. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Nakima? Do you think Ron DeSantis's brand of politics only plays in Florida? That's the big debate. He's in Iowa over the weekend. He has some pretty big crowds as crowds go for an alleged book signing. I mean, it wasn't like Donald Trump, 20,000 people when, in his heyday. But I think I read someplace he had 700, 900 people at a book signing, which you know, I, I'm a book author. You get 700 people at a book signing, you damn happy. So that's, you know, that's right, good that's for good. book signing purposes. But do you think he translates outside of Florida? Honestly, the proof will be in the pudding to know how much traction his message is gaining. And I don't want to sleep on him only because we didn't think that Donald Trump would get as mm. far as he got, not only in the first election where he won, but also in the second election where he came darn close, you know, to winning. And to think that there were tens of millions of Americans who bought into his message, that definitely leaves room for somebody like DeSantis to come in and swoop up those votes. Yeah, what concerns so. me is we saw with Donald Trump, all of that unpaid media, 
Remember in 2015 and 16, he was on three, four cable shows a day. He was taking calls in his pajamas. Everybody wanted him. He was so hot. And DeSantis seems to be, you know, on that same trajectory, getting that same kind of rhythm with this unpaid media. And that can be a killer because you but can't compete with it. he doesn't have a strong personality. doesn't have no, a strong personality. He, he doesn't. He's kind of a boring. And, uh, you know, for all of the horrible things about Donald Trump, you know, he did spend a lot of time on TV, so he does have some kind of charisma. Uh, we're going to continue that conversation on the other side. Uh, but on the other side, we also have KBLA Justice Correspondent Dion Raymond. She's going to be with us, bringing us the latest from inside the courtroom in the federal prosecution of L.A. City Council. Member Mark Ridley Thomas, New Sports and Traffic, up next. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. The present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I am back and I'm joined by KBLA Justice Correspondent Dion Raymond. She has been providing gavel to gavel coverage in the LA City Council member Mark Ridley Thomas federal bribery prosecution, a case that's happening right here in federal court in Los Angeles. Hello, Dion. Hi, Ariva. How are you? Fantastic. So I know that court is closed today. This judge has decided not to uh, hold court on Mondays, but to have court run from Tuesdays to Friday. And I know you'll be back in that court room bright and early tomorrow morning. But I wanted to uh, take advantage of this day, your day off, so to speak, to talk about some of the issues that have come up, some of the really significant issues, starting with the issue of this contract. There's been a lot made about how many contracts are involved in this alleged bribery uh, scheme, what the value of those contracts are. And I, I know the prosecution led off in its opening statement last week saying that this was a case about uh, power, privilege, and lies. And based on everything you've told me and the other reporting I've gotten from inside that courthouse, it seems like it's a case of innuendos, assumption, and misinformation. And maybe even I'm going to change that misinformation to disinformation uh, as we see more of this prosecution's case. But help us understand what the prosecution told us those contracts were and what the evidence actually revealed about the contracts. Good question, um, Ariva. Yes. And and I just want to say this, you know, if if this this trial, both sides have come out swinging like a Creed three movie. OK. And so there's been some heady, heavy, heady, heavy hitting. And like you said, in your window, uh, first of all, the prosecution did lead with um, telling the jury that there are certain contracts at issue, in other words, um, for with the Department of um, Department of Mental Health. Uh, Department of Probation and DCFS. And so the real issue, um, the real contract that's at issue is a telehealth contract that was um, supposed to be amended. And so the prosecution claimed that this contract would result in millions of dollars to USC's Department of Social Welfare. However, the defense clapped back, they hit back, showing that that was not the case, that it would amount to approximately $500,000. But I, I do want to say this, um, Ariva, that there are, as I mentioned, other contracts at issue. But the defense also argued in their opening that um, those contracts with the Department of Probation and the Department of um, uh, and, and DCFS, 
that those contracts were voted on, that those were done well before any of this alleged bribery and conspiracy was formed or took place. So you have the prosecution saying that there's, they used a the number $8 million in this telehealth contract, but we have a document that was produced right during the evidentiary stage of the trial last week that shows, as you just said, the contract was actually $545,000 over a five-year period, so not to exceed that amount. So that seems to be a, a really big distinction. And obviously the jury is going to have to parse that uh, out. I know there's this other issue of the $100,000 that Mark Riley Thomas donated $100,000 from his ballot uh, campaign to USC. And I think his attorneys conceded that the $100,000 and the donation might have violated USC's policy, but it didn't violate the law, that there was nothing illegal about this $100,000 donation. So why is USC, uh, well, not USC, but why is the prosecutor spending so much time on the $100,000 if even they're not alleging that it violated the law? Well, I believe what they're doing is, Ariva, is that they want the jury to believe that there's something wrong that happened. Very early in the jury questioning, when they were selecting jurors, there were questions about whether individuals had issues with actual nepotism, legacy, things like that. And so what I feel they're trying to do is bootstrap um, Ariba so that the jury has this impression and they are, they've been allowed to be very repetitive as if you hear it enough times that you will believe it, that it'll be true, that it'll be so, that if something feels bad, if it looks bad, if it, if the mm -hmm. optics of it could appear shaky, then they want them to believe that there was some type of violation of law. Again, the the defense said in their opening, they were very clear about it that that the prosecution wasn't showing everything. They weren't provide. They were not telling the whole story, and that violating policy, if policy was violated, is not the same as violating the law. Yeah, definitely not the same as uh, committing a federal crime for which you could spend uh, years in jail. And lastly, I want to talk about, again, the prosecution made a lot out of the fact that Mark Willie Thomas's son, Sebastian, received some kind of special treatment in the faculty appointment that he received at the university. But what we learned through the evidence was that the process took nearly 90 days and so Sebastian was subjected to the highest level background check performed by the university and that background check revealed no derogatory information. Uh, and presumably they checked court records, criminal records, educational records, and all of the things that you check in a high-level background check. So how is the prosecution making the argument that Sebastian Ridley Thomas received special treatment when the university did this exhaustive background check that he passed with flying colors? Well, in addition to the background check, Ariba, uh, one of the things that they're trying to drive home is what, why was this being done so quickly? What was the urgency surrounding this? Why was this trying to be pushed through, um, you know, at, at, after the admissions process had been completed? So they've made a big deal about this sense of urgency. However, on cross-examination of one of their own witnesses, uh, the defense was able to, to show the jury that, eh, this, this wasn't so urgent, that, that this was actually taking, um, some time, which was documented in an email that why is this taking so long? You've been working on this for months, the paperwork that is, and got the witness to admit that he had actually dropped the ball. Yeah, and, and with that whole background check for Sebastian Ruley Thomas, again, we know the prosecutor making a big deal out of uh, the sexual harassment claims. I guess there were two against him, but 
there's there was never any adjudication of those claims, right? It's not like he was uh, brought into a court of law and there was a determination that he had actually engaged in this sexual uh, harassment conduct. Folks are often hired for jobs when they have allegations that have not been substantiated or adjudicated, uh, you know, filed against them. Otherwise, some of us would never be able to work because, you know, folks might be accusing us of all kinds of stuff. So, again, why is the prosecutor, in your estimation, hammering on that point, given that there's been no determination about whether those claims were were legit or not? It's sexy, Ariva. It gets people's attention. And oftentimes, individuals will assume that someone has done something wrong if they've just been, if, if there are allegations, if someone has even said it. And so uh, they've really made it a a centerpiece, I think, of their prosecution, because they're saying that the motive for um, the conspiracy and the bribery was based on these sexual harassment allegations in order to save the family brand. Mm. Yeah, we'll be watching uh, as you go back into the courtroom Tuesday. uh, All all this week, we know that FBI agents are on the prosecutor's list and they say they're going to have a 10 hour direct examination with at least one or more of these FBI agents who uh, were involved in the investigation of this case. Great reporting. Uh, Dion, you will be back in the courtroom and back here tomorrow, 435, the one-stop destination for the latest in the federal bribery trial of LA City Council member Mark Ridley Thomas. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back with my contributors, Alan Orr. He is an immigration attorney and founder of Orr Immigration. And Nakima Levy-Armstrong, civil rights attorney, activist, and author of J is for Justice. Uh, Justin, again, glad to have two lawyers here with me today. Michael Cohen testifies in grand jury as Trump indictment appears near. Uh, Mr. Cohen, Donald Trump's one-time fixer, is a key piece of the puzzle in a case centered around a 2016 hush money payment to Stormy Daniels. Nakima, is Donald Trump ever going to get indicted? There are more stories about imminent indictments from state prosecutors to federal prosecutors And there seems to be a lot of smoke, but how much fire are any of these prosecutors going to bring when it relates to, you know, indicting our former president? You know, that's a great question. I've been wondering the same thing for many, (laughs) many years. Like the rest of America, I got sucked in early on when I started to see these various proceedings. And then when I realized they were going nowhere after sucking up our time, our energy, our hope, in thinking there would be some accountability, I just had to take a step back. So I'm not surprised that he is not going to appear before a grand jury. I don't know what it's going to take for this man to be held accountable because I don't understand how so many people who were around him in his administration have done time or been convicted and held accountable, and he hasn't. I don't know if he's the great Houdini, come back in disguise. I don't know. But I am not surprised by what's happening in Manhattan. Yeah, Alan, he seems like he really is Teflon Don. And these prosecutions, they're turning him almost into like, you know, Super Bowl games or pre-games. Like, you know, it's it, it's it's pending because no prosecutor would ask for a subject's, uh, you know, 
interview unless they were imminent. And we heard that down uh, in Georgia with Fonnie Willis when she told the court, you know, I don't want to release this information from the grand jury proceedings because indictments are imminent. And that's been, I don't know, about four imminent weeks ago and still no prosecution from Atlanta. And now we're seeing uh, with Mr. Braggs in Manhattan. Again, he's already interviewed seven, eight witnesses. I don't know how many times they need to talk to Michael Cohen. Seems like that guy has given testimony to everybody. He's told them it ain't that much to that little story with Stormy Daniels. Let's be real. It just ain't that complicated. What is going on? So I don't know if he's Teflon Don, but he's definitely a, a good mob boss because he doesn't type. He doesn't use cell phones. He isn't that person who's like sort of making this digital footprint. So he's smart about always having agency and someone else doing something for him. So that's been quite good for him. I will also say that the news probably pushes a lot of the Trump stories to get people riled up for the very same reason for viewing and, and all the other things that sort of happen. Because we all know in a regular courtroom, things take time. And I practice immigration law, so things take a long time. It could be three years in some cases before something sort of gets there. So we have to sort of wait and wonder. But I also remember what I think I forget what the, the show's called, but when you come from the king, you better be sure. I think that these women, basically black women, two black women have really led the charge on this and they're making sure the ducks are in the row. I don't know what's going on with DOJ. I don't know how to feel about DOJ. I, it is not the DOJ that I wanted to work for. I feel like it's taking a long time. It is too certain. I don't need a judge. I need a prosecutor and I need you to start dropping some indictments and then we'll work it out in the courtroom. Well, and, you know, I'm glad you mentioned it, Alan, because that special prosecutor, Jack Smith, right? Another Harvard dude, uh, Nakima, who was supposed to be the prosecutor of all prosecutors, was brought from another country back to the U.S. for the sole purpose of aggressively pursuing that investigation. And not to say he's doing nothing, but that's about the investigation of the stolen documents from the White House I uh, haven't heard a whole lot. I'm scrolling as we talk to see if there's anything new on that. I'm not seeing much on that. So is the special prosecutor also uh, going to, in, in some ways, I'd say disappoint us? And I don't mean disappoint is, is his job is not to indict someone who has not committed a crime. But they've told us over and over again that there appears to be a crime that's been committed. So what do you think is happening with that investigation? I'm trying not to get my hopes up, to be honest with you, because I don't understand how it constantly takes so long. And then at the end of the day, there's some kind of excuse or justification for why Trump is not being held accountable. So it was just hard for me to, you know, grab a hold of this sense of hope that something's going to change. I'm hoping it does. But. It's not looking too good in terms of Trump actually being held accountable in this lifetime. I, I believe the creator is or will hold him accountable. But in terms of the way these systems are functioning, that remains to be seen. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm kind of like you. At some point, you got to kind of disengage because you get your hopes up and it's, it's this emotional highs and low and the adrenaline gets going. And you think this is it, right? They have all the evidence. And we know if this was anyone except a former president, there is sufficient evidence in any number of these cases uh, to see a prosecution. But on a good note, uh, Alan, how wonderful is it that a black mayor in New Jersey decides that they're going to take down a statue of Christopher Columbus because we all know the lies we were told about Christopher right. Columbus and replace it with the statue of Harriet Tubman. 
I wish we could see more of that happening around the country. But but was that, I mean, how excited were you to see that? I'm very excited. Um, for a long time, in my own immigration world, I've been done with Christopher Columbus um, and the concept of what he was doing and discovering places that already existed and sort of killing people who were already here. So I think, you know, it's time to rewrite the history, you know, and, and it's not just Christopher Columbus, it's everybody. And I think the story has been told many times of a black kid in a museum and they're saying, here are all of these great people. And then you say, well, which one of these people own slaves? And all of them did. Right. All of them. So it's time to have that complex complication of saying, OK, I can accept these people did some things, but they also did some pretty bad things to some pretty good people. Right. And, and deal with the Thomas, Thomas Jefferson legacy that lives on and people who exist and walk the earth today and say, listen, it's time for this rectification of saying the glory isn't all there, right? Yeah, I just wonder, Nakima, why we don't see more, you know, we went through that period after George Floyd's murder, and you obviously been on the ground with respect to that, and we saw a lot of statues removed, but I wonder why we didn't see more of those statues being replaced with great historical African-American figures like Harriet Tubman. What's going on in where you are, uh, around George Floyd, is there a statue that's being erected in his honor, or what are you all thinking about to try to memorialize what happened? Uh, you know that horrific murder of George Floyd. Up to this point, there hasn't been a statue um, erected. However, we do still have George Floyd Square, or at least a semblance of George Floyd Square. The city has actually bought up some properties near George Floyd Square, buildings that were not going, businesses that weren't going to reopen um, in the midst of everything that happened. So now there are community talks about what will happen with that space. And it'll be interesting to see how city government responds. You know, up to this point, their response has been woefully inadequate with regard to concerns that people have about the need to memorialize the space to not allow cars to continue to drive through. They did open up parts of that intersection where it happened, which caused a lot of concern. So there hasn't been enough done yet up to this point. But there was a statue of um, Christopher Columbus that was forcibly taken down by members of our Native American community. They <laughs> wow. did. I, I applaud them. They did a phenomenal job. Some of them were actually charged uh, criminally for doing that, but they I definitely think they did the right thing. I think that those statues need to be taken down around the country and governments know that this needs to happen. They shouldn't wait for someone, you know, to go and tear down a statue for them to take action. They know proactively that the time has come, as Alan said, um, for them to rectify the wrongs of the past and to tell the truth Just about what they've done. I'm just curious about where the community is on George Floyd. What would they like to see erected in this George Floyd Square? Is there any consensus about what should go up, if a statue should go up, what it should look like? Because I don't know if you saw, both of you saw the Harriet Tubman statue. Yeah, it's it's a silhouette of her. It's not the typical bronze you know, figure or, or bust of her. So what, what kind of things are they thinking about, Nakima, about George Floyd, if there were going to be a statue? I think that people would want to see that. He has an aunt named uh, Angela Harrelson who actually lives in the Twin Cities in an area not too far um, from where George Floyd was killed. Their uh, Global Foundation, their Memorial Foundation is still active. And they actually um, have worked with Ben Crump in order to try to designate, I think, around a half a million dollars 
from the family to boost up black businesses in that area. So that is a big part of the conversation because it was an economically depressed area. Um, and there's this, the same corner store that called 911 on George Floyd is actually still there. Mm. Right. I grew up in L.A. where I'm like, I don't know how how the store is still there, but it's still there. So people are kind of talking through revitalization. Like it's still open. Like nothing oh. ever happened. And oh. there have been a lot of issues with that particular store before George Floyd was killed. But, you know, it, it's complicated as to why it's still there. Some mm -hmm. of it has to do with who's in the community and who's protecting the store, et cetera. But there's been a lot of young Black women who have been leading the charge around redevelopment of the area near George Floyd Square and what they want to see happen. Well, definitely so, keep us posted on that, Nakima. Very interested to see what happens. Like I said, I think if we're taking down statues, let's put something up. And nothing better to me to put up than a Black woman like a Harriet Tubman. Again, thank you so much, Alan. Uh, Alan Orr from Orr Immigration Law Firm. And thank you, Nakima Levy-Armstrong, civil rights attorney, activist, and author of JS for Justice. After news, sports, and traffic, more with Reva Martin in real time right here on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. Cellular shades and more? Shop Blindster today and save up to 50% over comparable blinds from brick-and-mortar stores. Get custom blinds at low prices and free shipping at Blindster.com. Is this, this is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. Ray Richardson. UCLA and USC will be competing in the NCAA Women's Basketball Tournament. The Bruins are the number four seed in the Greenville One region and will host the first round at Parley Pavilion. The Bruins open up against Sacramento State on Saturday. USC is in the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2014. The Trojans are the number eight seed in the Seattle Three region. They'll play South Dakota State Friday in Blacksburg, Virginia. Top four seeds in the women's bracket, undefeated South Carolina, Stanford, Indiana, and Virginia Tech. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. This sports report was brought to you by Original Taco Pete. Aaron at Original Taco Pete. Come in today for our tasty season black taco we're at 3272 west slauson off crenshaw or call 323-348-4441 hi i'm civil rights attorney areva martin host of areva martin in real time weekdays 4 to 6 p.m right here on kbla talk 1580 be sure to tune in weekdays at 4 35 p.m for your daily download on the federal bribery trial of la city council member mark ridley thomas the case is sure to have many twists and turns, and our program will be the show of record in the case of United States versus Mark Ridley Thomas. We have our own seasoned justice correspondent who will be checking in with us to keep you up to speed on the daily details of this high-profile legal case. Be sure to tune in to Ariva Martin in real time weekdays at 4.35 p.m. for United States versus Mark Ridley Thomas, only on KBLA Talk 1580. Order in the court. court. The U.S. is dealing with the fallout of a massive bank failure. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed Friday and it was taken over by the U.S. government. It's the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. President Biden is expected to approve a controversial oil project today, the ConocoPhillips Willow Drilling Project on federal land in Alaska's North Slope. The administration plans to scale the project back from the initial request. Environmentalists are not happy with the Biden administration. They say he promised that he would not move forward with this project when he was campaigning for president. 
And Ruthie Carter has become the first Black woman to win two Oscars. Carter, who in 2019 became the first Black person to win the Oscar for costume design for her work on Marvel's Black Panther, was recognized for the film's sequel, Wakanda Forever. In her speech, she thanked director Ryan Coogler and asked late Black Panther star Chadwick Boseman to look after her own mother, who recently died at 101 years old. Speaking of the Oscars, the indie sci-fi film Everything Everywhere All at Once won seven categories at the Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Actress for Michelle Yeoh, who was the first Asian actor to win a Best Actor Award at the Academy Awards. It was a milestone for Asian representation. In a speech Saturday night, former Vice President Mike Pence delivered what amounted to his strongest rebuke of Donald Trump to date, criticizing the former president for his role in the lead up to the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol, as well as attempts to rewrite the history of that day. A monument to African-American pioneer Harriet Tubman was unveiled in Newark, New Jersey on last Thursday taking over space where a statue of Christopher Columbus stood until the summer of 2020. And Amy Wax, a law professor, has said publicly that, on average, Blacks have lower cognitive ability than whites, that the country is better off with fewer Asians as long as they tend to vote for Democrats, and that non-Western people feel a tremendous amount of resentment and shame. Hmm. At the University of Pennsylvania, where she has tenure, Amy Wax has invited a white nationalist to speak to her class, and students are asking whether this professor's speech deserves to be protected as the university prepares to discipline her. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. And in this hour, it's all about the Oscars. Yes. Millions of people tuned in yesterday to watch the fabulous fashion and also to see who would go home with the golden statue. But lots of folks were disappointed and I would say even divided. Some Twitter users were disappointed to see that Black Panther star Angela Bassett lost in the Best Supporting Actress category, especially to Jamie Lee Curtis. Other folks said Angela broke a golden rule when she sat through the applause for Jamie Lee Curtis as Jamie made her way to the stage to accept her award. I think you have to understand that for Black folks, Angela Bassett is royalty, and lots of folks think of Jamie Lee Curtis as Hollywood royalty, given who her parents were. Uh, we're going to be joined uh, by Tamika Townsend. She's a professor from the University of Washington. She's a critic on race and the media. She's here to help us break down what happened at the Oscars, what we should make of what some folks are calling the snub of Angela Bassett, what we should make of Angela Bassett sitting down as Jamie Lee Curtis uh, you know, took the, the stage to accept her award. Was that quiet disappointment or was it rude behavior? And where does the Oscars go from here? You know, we didn't have a lot of drama like the last time when we had the big slap of Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. But hmm, has the Oscars really lost its significance, particularly to African-American actors? When we come forward, KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal in real time. 
You're listening to Arriva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Arriva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. You are listening and watching Arriva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Arriva Martin. And if you are watching us on our KBLA YouTube station, post a comment, post a question. We're going to read it on air or download the KBLA app and you can listen wherever you are, anywhere in the world. And in this hour, in my second hour, I'm taking your calls at 1-800-920-1580. I want to hear from you, particularly if you were glued to your television set last night or you've been on social media uh, following what's been said or what's being said about the Oscars. My guest in this hour, Professor Tamika Townsell, wrote a really thoughtful piece. And, and I want to read uh, the beginning of that piece. She said, when the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences announced the nominees for its 95th Oscars and three of the most celebrated films of the season, The Woman King, Till, and St. Omer, received no nominations a familiar refrain of frustration rang forth. These films demonstrated typical dramatic and technical markers that tend to predict cinematic success, positive reviews, scripts inspired by true stories, and adherence to dramatic formulas. So it was natural to wonder whether the fact that each featured a Black female director and Black female cast may have had something to do with the snubs. Uh, welcome, Professor Townsell. Thank you so much for having me, Ariva. Thank you for writing that very thoughtful piece. You wrote that piece about snubs even before the conversation that's taking place online today after the Oscars, because today there's been a lot of online talk about snubs, particularly as it relates to Angela Bassett. So we're going to talk about that. But before we get to that, yeah, let's talk about The Woman King, Till, and St. Omer. No nominations. Zero. And Not the Woman King, Viola Davis. Talk about Hollywood and Black royalty. Uh, what happened? I, I, I'm speechless about it. Maybe you have an explanation. You study yeah. this for a living. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, pure and simple, we see time and time again that Black artists, especially when they are a part of a project uh, that is really centering Black life, Black characters, that there seems to be a higher bar. There's this constantly shifting goalposts within a prestige organization uh, like the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And we saw that play out uh, this time around. Viola Davis has called the woman king her magnum opus. And anyone who saw that film knows that first and foremost, Viola delivers every time. OK, you cannot uh, see her appear on your screen, whether it's your small screen or big screen and not be moved and not be captivated. OK, she is constantly delivering. But what is uh, I think in, in this sense, Viola Davis has uh, an Oscar, right? She has a Golden Globe. She's she's an EGOT, right? One of the few Black women uh, who, who has won these prestige awards are, uh, across multiple artistic categories. But Gina Prince-Bythewood, uh, who uh, people my age first fell in love with her through her through love and basketball, mm -hmm. and uh, we we've seen her uh, develop and also 
constantly deliver these uh, very carefully constructed stories about Black life, about Black love, about Black womanhood and Black girlhood, and not really get her accolades, right? She doesn't get uh, acknowledgement from her peers. And that was, I think, an even larger uh, snub that her uh, directing and the vision and the intention that she brought to this breathtaking film, this very complicated film, which by the way, the women were doing all of their own stunts in this. Wow. And that was a part of her direction. She said, look, in order to live in a, this space and pull off this performance, they have to be able to do it. They have to know what it's like as women to have that power, uh, that warrior power in their bodies. And she, you know, fearlessly led these uh, women on this years long journey to create this masterpiece. And she gets that, uh, the door slammed uh, in, in her face. It's unfortunately something that we're used to. Uh, we're used to seeing this with Black art generally, but especially when it comes to acknowledgement at the Oscars. Yeah, and we know this is not just about money because I was just reading something where Creed Three, uh, biggest Black, you know, uh, well, it was the biggest grossing movie for a Black director and a debut black director like Michael B. Jordan, it, it grossed over $100 million. So we know that stories directed by black people, starring black people about black folks, make money at the box office. And that diversity report that the professor at UCLA does every year shows us that black folks are some of the most TV watching this, movie going this people on the planet. So you cannot say that we won't go see it. You know, if you make it for us, we're going to be there. So we know this isn't, uh, Professor Townsell, an uh, issue of money. Uh, now, we know the budgets of Woman King, the Woman King budget was incredibly low. Yeah. When you think of a movie of its proportion and, and you know, what it was bringing forth on the big screen, as you said, but if it's not money, then what is it? Because you would think the theater, the, the uh, you know, the, movie production houses as well as the Academy would have to take that into consideration. Right. Well, when you look at an organization like this, you have to consider its history because when we are looking at who the nominees are, this is based on people who are a part of the filmmaking enterprise. So that what is supposed to be happening is that people are supposed to be judged, have their work judged by their peers. Uh, but we see this happen in all kinds of different contexts that uh, when you have an institution like the cinema that has historically been dominated, managed uh, by and um, sort of targeting a white audience uh, and in terms of the people who have been running it, white men, uh, then they have a different uh, sort of point of view of who they consider to be their peers. So right. sometimes uh, there are films that are being created that are true masterpieces that aren't even making the shortlist, right? So when right. you look at 
some of Regina's Regina Hall's work that she did last year, which was phenomenal, it, it, especially uh, Hunt for Jesus, Save Your Soul. I mean, people weren't even talking about that in the conversation. Well, of you know what? I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, black folks may have, I don't know, we may have had something to do with that because, you know, black church folks in particular were really turned off uh, a lot of vitriol on social media about that. Folks that didn't see it. It's a movie about uh, a, a preacher, a mm-hmm. black preacher who gets involved in some kind of sexual indiscretions with a member or some members in his church. And right. it's a big lawsuit and folks flee the church. And here's the first lady standing by him trying to protect her husband's integrity, whatever's left of it, trying to right. protect the church, whatever's left is down to like zero members. Uh, and standing by her man, but I, black church folks didn't like, like that movie, uh, Professor Townsend. They thought it was like just shameful that they were airing this dirty laundry, that they were stereotyping black pastors. And in the movie, you know, he had this elaborate wardrobe, closets right. of super expensive clothing and shoes. And they had this very expensive lifestyle that they were also trying to uh, protect. So do you think the theme and how sensitive black folks got about the movie maybe overshadowed the great job that Regina Hall, because I agree with you. I, I watched the movie. I was floored by it. I, you know what? To be honest, I didn't watch it because I had gotten so much negative feedback. And then I was on an airplane and I had a chance to watch it. I was like, this is a good movie. It really was. I couldn't wait to see this. And this is one of those films where the controversy surrounding it certainly, um, I think, curbed some of the or influenced some of the negative critique that it ended up getting. But when you look at Hall's performance, whether or not people agree with the story uh, and obviously, you know, there's been all this speculation about what real life pastor may or may not have been the inspiration for this. But what I think was captivating, what kept me floored, uh, and I'm actually my dad is a pastor. And so I, I grew up sort of with within this. What had me floored was this close up look at the interior life of a first lady, right? What it means to walk this tightrope and to try to uh, please your man, to uh, please a congregation, uh, to, you know, um, adhere to these uh, norms of respectability and try to secure something for yourself. That is what uh, Regina Hall gave us. And the thing is, when it comes to the Academy, it's not like it's lots of Black folk voting, right? So I think that, and some of the performances historically that have been acknowledged, Black performances that have been acknowledged by the Oscars were controversial. The first Black woman, Hattie McDaniel, to win uh, an Academy Award, won for her portrayal as Mammy. They didn't even give her an actual name, right? And Gone with the Wind. (laughs) Uh, Mammy, right? So she was literally performing a caricature. And the NAACP was big mad about this, right? There was so much debate, uh, even to the point where the Black press was reticent to even acknowledge 
her historic win. So um, that controversy um, and even a little bit of scandal uh, has not stopped Black performances before from being recognized. Uh, but I think that in this, what we're used to seeing, the Black performances that are recognized tend to um, be within Black films that are helmed by white directors. Mm. Uh, and the films, while they might feature uh, a Black person in a starring role uh, or a supporting role, they uh, often are not films that are completely focused on Black life. There's well, Black people a part of this bigger sort of white or multiracial story. Yes, and we we know that is the way people talk about uh, Halle Berry's win for the Oscar for Monsters Ball. That's right. And another controversial film, particularly for Black folks, because Black people, I remember when she was nominated and then won that Oscar, the, the talk being, well, look what she had to do. She had to have these explicit sex scenes in the movie. The whole right. theme of the movie was so dark uh, and you know, that was that was a, also a very controversial movie for Halle Berry. And obviously, as you said, it's a movie directed by a white director, mm -hmm. primarily white actors other than her, I guess, and her son. And I guess that was Michael B. Jordan was her husband, right? Who was incarcerated. I think, uh, I think Diddy. <laughs> oh, you're right. It, it was. It was. And that, I think that might have been one of his earlier performances. One, and we don't see him a lot on the big screen, so I didn't even remember. No, we don't. Right. It was Diddy that was getting executed, that was incarcerated and going to the death penalty. Uh, yeah, that that was uh, again one of those controversial films for Black folks, and we haven't seen her nominated, have we, since then? No, Halle Berry, uh, and her work. Uh, she directed and starred in a film that came out in 2020, Bruised, uh, which yes, funny enough, that that story uh, was originally written for Blake Lively, uh, that character, a white uh, actress, and, and she turned it down. And Holly Berry, I think, has the same management as her. So the story had come to her attention and she wanted to play the role and she had to direct it. It was hard for Holly Berry to even get that film made. Mm. So we see that even while there is this um, sort of passing acknowledgement of Black talent, and sometimes that acknowledgement comes when Black performers are uh, sort of capitulating to these stereotypes, that even that doesn't yield the kind of security that it does for white performers. That still a Holly Berry has to struggle. She was struggling to even get that film financed. I think she had to use mm. some of her own money. So there is always, there tends to be this asterisk uh, next to black uh, cinematic uh, awards. Well, you know, it's interesting because we should not gloss over the fact that last night history was made with Ruthie Carter, first black yes. woman to win two Oscars. Now, Ruth is not an actor. Ruth is a costumer and she's got her start with Spike Lee uh, right. back in the 80s. And she has been a part of some incredible films, including, you know, films that we all love, like Malcolm X. So here's a costume designer. Black costume designer who's fabulous by everybody's account, you know, by every account. 
she wins two Oscars. What do you make of that, Professor Townsell? Not for acting. And costuming is a new category even for the Oscars. Am I right about that? No, I'm thinking about... Uh, it's not new, right? It's not a new category, but obviously she won it for the first time with the first. Yeah, it's uh, it's not a category that we have seen. Certainly, a lot of black. Um, yeah, well, we haven't usually seen. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So she's new. I mean, she's she's ushering in a new era as it re relates to black costumers. But what do you think the black actors are thinking? Like, we love you, Ruth, but girl. How does the costumer win two Oscars and we've been out here and we don't have a black actor that's one too? Yeah, I think it's that um, that two things are true at once, you know, on the and this is something that's very familiar to black folks and to black women. While you want to celebrate uh, her win and you want to point to how well-deserved it is, um, I also want to say, though, if you look at what she had to do, I mean, come on, <laughs> the the costume artistry within both Black Panther, which she got the first Oscar for in, and uh, Wakanda Forever is phenomenal. I mean, she had to create um, costumes from a world that didn't exist, right. uh, really. So when you look at the bar that somebody like, uh, a Ruth Carter has to clear in order to get acknowledgement. And you look at other people, like some of the, one of the other people who was nominated is the um, costume designer for, um, I think it's called Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which is a cute film, but it was like a tour fashion. And I'm thinking- I know, like Christian Bieber couture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like go back to a magazine from the, the period 40s or 50s and figure out what the people were wearing. Yeah, no, Barb, very, very high. Ruth Carter, an incredible costume designer, uh, well-deserved two Oscars. Uh, and you're right, oftentimes I feel like African-American women in particular pitted against each other. Uh, and you have her winning in categories where you don't have someone like Angela Bassett, who this was her second nomination. We know we can think back to what's love got to do with it when she was also nominated. Uh, when right. we come forward after some new sports and traffic, we're going to talk about black royalty, Angela Bassett, all love her, love her, love her. She was fabulous last night, looked incredibly regal in her purple uh, designer gown, but she came up short in that best supporting actress category, and folks aren't happy about it. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. Make sure you download the KBLA app. And if you have a call, if you have a question or a comment about the Oscars last night, give us a call at 1-800-920-1580. I'm taking your calls. I'm joined by Professor Tamika Townsend of the University of Washington. She's a scholar, educator with expertise in race and media studies. And she has a new book out called Branding Black Womanhood. Media Citizenship from Black Power to Black Girl Magic. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Townsell, for your brilliance and your expertise on this issue. All right, we got to talk about Angela Bassett last night. We know that uh, Miss Bassett is considered royalty, not only in 
you know, amongst black folks, but I would venture to say in Hollywood. She was nominated for Best Actress for her role as Tina Turner in the biopic uh, What's Love Got to Do With It back in 1994. And she was beaten uh, that time by Holly Hunter, who had starred in The Piano. So for many, this was going to be that moment. This is going to be that opportunity. And some folks think, uh, Professor Townsend, that the Oscars has a way of making good for folks who have been overlooked. Like some folks thought last year, uh, Will Smith got that Oscar for King Richard, the movie about Richard Williams, uh, the dad of Serena and Venus Williams, because of all the other movies that Will Smith has been in and his illustrious career, Mm -hmm. But yet he had not won an Oscar. Uh, do you first of all, do you think that happens? Do you think the Oscars does that? Because a lot of folks are thinking that's what happened with Jamie Lee Curtis. Like Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, it's Tony Curtis's daughter and she's right. Hollywood royalty, but she's never won an Oscar. And you could tell she was super, super excited last night. So do you think the Oscars does that? Like they look at people and say, long career, time is here, give them an award. Yeah, I mean, the Oscar voters are human. Um, and so I think that they are subject to all of the things that uh, could influence any of us when we go in to evaluate the quality of a performance or of a film. Um, and despite the fact that they are human, though, um, I was just looking this up, 81% of Oscar voters today identify as white uh, and 67% as male. And that's after there's been some intentional efforts to diversify who gets to vote for um, these really important awards. Uh, so I think that to some degree, while Angela Bassett is absolutely royalty uh, to us, I think if you look at her work, again, because she is very intentional about how she selects her roles. And because she has portrayed these iconic uh, Black women, I think that the uh, sort of downside to that or the bitter side to that is that a lot of times those films are um, not on the radar of the majority of the people who are voting, right, who have admitted um, anonymously that a lot of times they don't even watch Black films. So, um, so much of her work, so much of what we appreciate about her has, I think, could very well be um, not even really legible to some of the people who um, have the power to help make these decisions. Yeah, we, we should note that Angela Bassett made history for her performance earlier this year after becoming the very first actor from the Marvel Cinematic Universe to not only receive a Golden Globe acting nomination for a Marvel feature film, but also to win altogether, taking home the accolade for Best Supporting Actress in a Motion Picture. Uh, she was also first person to be nominated for Best uh, Supporting. Well, that's with respect to that Marvel film. Let's talk about the Marvel Universe. That's not the kind of film that typically is going to be nominated by the Academy to begin with. So the fact that exactly. she won that globe is hugely uh, significant. What do you make of the fact that she was even nominated by the Oscars, by the Academy for a Marvel Universe film? 
I think that when you look at the giant that is Marvel, that is Disney, you can't overlook it. Um, and when you look at the, again, the intention and the artistry that someone like Ryan Coogler brings to that story, this is so much more than a typical superhero film. This is a film, um, he says, that's about um, loss. Um, it's about triumph. It's about uh contemporary colonialism right this is as deep as it gets when you talk but, about a marvel film but despite that and all those things being true that you said no other actor has even been nominated for right. his or her role in a marvel film yeah. uh the original black panther was the first and only marvel movie to win best picture in 2019 so despite the multiple subtexts and themes of Black Panther and the sequel, it made history by, you know, breaking through, breaking a yes. barrier uh, in the Academy in terms of how they think about movies. So for us, the movie was everything. But like you said, to those 81% of those white folks are going, hmm, you know, we, we know some of them saw it because the movie made so much money. It had to yes. be seen by more than just Black people. But yes. your point is that Oftentimes, the folks who are voting, are, Black movies don't register for them, which is, we can go back to Angela Bassett. You said in the course of her career, many of the movies that she's been in maybe didn't even make the uh, radar of some of these folks. But there was this sense that this was her time. Like, yeah. she got robbed of it in 94 and now come yeah. forward almost 20 years later, this would be the time. Yeah. And I think she thought that too. I think that her response and people have called it beautifully human. I appreciate that she didn't rush to applaud someone because we can see the significance of the nomination and we can see the reality of having your hopes dashed because, you know, even the category that she's nominated for uh, best uh, performance by an actress isn't a supporting role. To say that it's even a supporting role, I think is a, is a bit of a stretch. Uh, she is central, absolutely, uh, to uh, this film. And when you compare that to the role that Jamie Lee Curtis plays in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Um, just if you look at the number of lines and scenes, uh, Angela Bassett's performance exceeds Curtis's. And some people have said, well, if it was going to go to someone else, perhaps it should have gone to Stephanie Sue, who uh, played the daughter of the lead actress uh, in Everything, Everywhere, and is arguably again a much more um a, a much more expansive role than Curtis plays in the film. And so I think it was one of those things where Curtis was perhaps getting the delayed or belated acknowledgement. And I but I don't think that when you look at uh both performances side by side, it's very hard to see what voters saw in Curtis's performance that they thought it exceeded Bassett's performance in Wakanda Forever. 
Yeah, you know, these things are tough. Somebody's got to win. And by definition, that means somebody's going to lose. Yeah, uh, I'm somebody. thinking back to Denzel sitting there when Fences, right, is nominated and Viola Davis wins. And this is Denzel's heart. This is his soul. You know, he did everything for that movie. And I thought Denzel deserved that award. So even in that case, so it really begs the question about how significant these awards events are. There are seemingly now many, many more award shows, whether it's the NAACP, whether it's the Critics' Choice, it's the Golden Globes, it's the Screenwriters. I mean, it just seems like they've just mushroomed, although people still put a lot of emphasis on the Academy as being kind of the, you know, the grandmother, the granddaddy right. of all of these awards. But yeah. are they making and breaking folks in this industry. When we come forward, I want to talk about that and then talk about the beautiful tribute that Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors uh, gave to Angela Bassett from the stage last night at the Oscars. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time. KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back with Professor Tamika Townsell. She is an expert on race and media. And we're talking about yesterday's Oscars. Really asking the question, did Angela Bassett get snubbed? We know that if you were watching, you would have seen presenters Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors when they took the stage to hand out the award for best cinematography. They actually honored Angela Bassett. Uh, Jordan said, hey, auntie, which was a reference to the 2018's uh, Black Panther. And then uh, Major, Jonathan Majors added, we love you. Uh, how touching was that, Professor Townsell, to see those two guys who were up there? They had a job to do. They had teleprompter. They had, you know, copy to read. But yet they, uh, you know, they went off script for a minute and gave that, you know, mm -hmm. tribute to Angela Bassett. I, it was the most beautiful display of Black love. And I hope that that moment gets seared into time the way that uh, moments from the previous year have been discussed. Mm -hmm. I it, it was part of what was beautiful about it is that if, if you aren't really aware of the nuances of uh, Black culture and um, the way that Black communities relate to one another, where sort of anybody can be your auntie, right? We all sort of can look at Angela Bassett and her husband, Courtney B. Vance, as like Auntie uh, Angela and, and Uncle uh, Courtney. So the fact that they use this um, close, uh, this close, uh, term to refer to her, bringing her into and acknowledging that despite all the hoopla, right, despite all the pomp and circumstance of uh, the Academy Awards, that on another level, on a deeper level, that uh, they're all a part of this uh, Black family, uh, this, this Black, uh, shared Black cultural experience. And it was them saying, we see you. And that is what uh, Black performers and Black filmmakers have been demanding, have been fighting for. Representation matters because, in part, it acknowledges and it forces 
these various institutions to see Black people, to see Black life, to see Black artistry. So I absolutely loved it. And, you know, they they still got to what they were up there to do. But it was, um, I think it was just enough. And it, it, it just endeared them both, uh, Jonathan Majors especially, into all of our hearts as if, you know, they didn't have enough love, right? Right. Uh, from, from Michael Black B. Folks. Jordan is coming up. Well, both of them coming off that amazingly successful, financially successful and well-received yeah. movie Creed 3. Uh, yeah. And we know there's going to be a Creed 4 and there's going to be a whole Creed uh, enterprise that will continue for some years to come. Uh, but you gave some startling statistics. 81% of the folks who are voting still white. And this is after the Oscar So White campaigns. This is yep. after efforts, as you said, to diversify. We've made a little dip, but haven't done a whole lot. So uh, is it time to move on? I know there's a conversation happening about is it time to combine the categories so it's not best actor and best actress to have just one category Right. Uh, women say that's going to be catastrophic for them. They're already losing to men, not getting nominated. So they, they said combining the categories will probably even make it worse. But I'm just wondering, given the success that so many Black movies like Creed are having without ever getting nominated for this big award, right. should Black actresses and actors and should the Black community, should we really just be thinking about moving on from the Oscars? Whatever that means. Because, I mean, that's a big loaded question. Right. But it just feels like there's so much hope and anticipation every year. And no matter what, we're always let down. I mean, we're always. Yeah. Just- we usually are let down. And I think that that is just a part of Black freedom struggles is finding the joy and being able to tell our stories and not allowing um, the dismissals of others to diminish that joy that we have and making sure that we support our stories, that we support um, the people who are making things so that we get to see ourselves uh, on screen. So there is, we, we have to hold on to that joy, but I think that we also have to keep demanding that these institutions that claim to be meritocracies are living up to what they profess to be. And if it is a meritocracy, then then let's see that. We need to see that reflected in um who gets nominated and, and who's voting. Um, and, and if we look beyond the acting categories, things are even more dismal in terms of uh, they are almost exclusively white men. If you look into a lot of the more technical things, uh, cinematography and sound, uh, you're going to have almost no people of color uh, and almost and very few women who are going to see representation in those categories. So there's a lot of work to be done. uh, And there's a way in which the if the academy is going to retain its prestige it has to uh begin to listen to the the demographics that are quickly becoming the majority uh in this uh in this country and who are quickly becoming the majority of the the film audience right uh we we should still i think demand that our voices be heard 
And this is something that Prince Bythewood acknowledged when she was talking about her snub as director of The Woman King. She said that she wrote a piece and said that she was a part of a conversation where some folks were looking for directors uh, for an upcoming film. They were not even considering directors who had not been previously nominated for an Oscar. You weren't even going to uh, make the shortlist mm -hmm. if you didn't have that accolade. So it does matter in terms of who is even getting access to that director's chair, to a lot of these power seats to be able to shape the stories that are being told. Yes, that's true. I, I guess I get a little nervous when we use the word, uh, you know, meritocracy or merit, because we know there is no meritocracy in this country. And we know that it's never been one. Exactly. And if we start talking about it, you know, somehow that'll be used against us in a way that, you know, will benefit other groups and, and definitely not African-Americans. And, and I hear that, that obviously some jobs you're not going to even be considered for unless you have this degree or this level of experience or you've been nominated for this award. But I think what people like Michael B. Jordan has shown with Creed Three, what Will Packer has shown yes. with Girls Trip and, yes. uh, you know, Best Man sequel, uh, you know, those movies is that there is an audience there is a thirst for those Black stories that Black people will go see them. And yet you may not ever get I think of uh, an Oscar. I think of folks like Samuel Jackson. Yep. You know, there's no one that works more than Samuel L. Jackson, who you can turn on your TV at two in the morning or six in the morning, any time of day or night and catch a movie from whatever generation you are born yes. in or live in. And th damn, that's Sam Jackson. You know, yep. he is like one of the most, you know, prolific actors in Hollywood commercials. You know, you name it, he's done yeah. it. But he's not going to get an Oscar likely in this lifetime. I don't want to say never, never is a big long time, but he's gotten to be, you know, he's so revered and he's yeah. so respected in the industry. And yeah, you may not get those jobs that require you to be Oscar nominated, but it seems like there's so many other opportunities out there for black folks with all the streaming sites and all the competition that's happening, all the consolidation. It seems like content, uh, you know, there, there's boundless and endless amount of content that's being created and successful folks like Viola Davis, mm -hmm. they, you know, they figure out how to make their mark. They figure out how that's to, right. you know, work in their craft. I'm thinking of, I don't know if you've seen this, just kind of off script from the, the Oscars, but your, your film critic or your, your culture critic, the new bounce sitcom with Kim Whitley, Tisha Campbell, and actor Nicole yes. Brown, actor age. So yes. it's kind of a take on Golden Girls, yes. but it's a modern day Black female women, successful women showing friendship and the, the trials and tribulations that you know women in their middle ages go through. Mm -hmm. And again, on a channel, Bounce, most yeah. folks maybe didn't hear, you know, maybe don't even have Bounce, but it debuted the largest audience yes. for a bounce sitcom in its history. I think like 2.1 million viewers. Yes. So again, opportunities for black folks to work, to do quality work, because again, you know, not necessarily the job yeah. that or the show that may show up on a CBS or one of those quote unquote, you know, network mm -hmm. mainstream stations. 
-hmm. but they're out there and they're working and they're telling stories and they're representing black folks. So I just say to black actors and actresses, what I say to any black folks, you know, we're rooting for you. We we will go see your movies. We will watch your sitcoms. I was at a, a viewing party for Kim and Atisha's sitcom, black folks, you make it, we'll come. That's right. We'll support you. We will support you. And Angela Bassett was fabulous yesterday. She's fabulous today. And she continues to be fabulous and a role model for young actors and actresses, for old actors and actresses, not just young. And for anybody that loves, uh, you know, watching folks at her her level do what they do. So I thank you so much, Professor Townsend, for joining me. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for lifting up these stories. I want to give you a shout out, give you a shout out again for your book. I found it. It's called Branding Black Womanhood, Media Citizenship from Black Power to Black Girl Magic. Uh, let's support black authors and support those folks who are telling our stories. So again, thank you for joining me in this hour. Thank All you. right, y'all, this is it for me. But coming up next is the Raw Report. But if you want to be a part of this conversation, continue to follow me on all social platforms at Ariva Martin. After news, sports, and traffic, more from KBLA Talk 1580. We've got a KBLA lot to talk 1580 about. Santa Monica.